Okay, we seem to be recording, which is a good thing since we weren't just a minute ago. Uh, we've been talking, for those of you who just started listening to this, uh, about some words that I put on the board just for fun, get our interest a little bit. Diakonos, which is deacon or servant. Dulos, which is a slave or a bond slave. And I'm not going to bore the people here with a, an entire recitation again, so come back and talk to me if you would like more information on those. But someone asked, well, what about Diakonos isn't that overseer? One of the ways a deacon was an overseer was in the very first time a deacon was established in the church. A deacon was a servant who was given oversight under the authority of the elders slash apostles. Because in the original church, meaning the one in Jerusalem, the elders were the apostles. And the church grew so fast that they said, I, I, we can't handle this. We're not going to leave the ministry God gave us to do all these other things. So you pick people who are full of the Spirit, people who are trusted, and then we will give this authority to them. They brought them to the apostles, and the apostles basically handed over the authority. And in some cases, for example, they oversaw all the money. The apostles didn't hold on to that control. They wanted nothing to do with it. All of that went to the seven the first of what have been come to known as deacons. So a deacon can be an office, if you will, a leadership role of a person entrusted with a great deal of ministry. I consider myself to be the, a, a deacon. In fact, my title literally means senior deacon because minister is simply an old English translation of the word deacon, a servant. And so my job is to be the senior of the servants and, and to organize and administer the servants or service that happens at North Orange Christian Church. Some would say, but wait a minute, isn't that the realm of these other people? For example, what is that word? Okay, not bad. So where's the accent? So the way you said it was like a double accent. Because you slow down, and that's what's going to happen is you're trying to pronounce things. You slow down sometimes, and you'll actually end up accenting more than one syllable. Uh, and the only problem with that is that sometimes you actually do accent more than one syllable, and we're not trying to do that here. Uh, so as I was taught the pronunciation, remember the vowels are a little bit different, presbyteros. Presbyteros, okay? Um, I believe the Erasmian would be uh, presbuteros. Okay. Now, does that sound familiar? Presbyterian or presbyter. And what does that mean? What is a presbyter? And don't say Presbyterian. You were thinking that, weren't you? I guess I'm not going to vote. What is a presbyter? A presbytery is the section, and one of the one of the people, because they do believe in a plurality of those, is the presbyter, or one of the presbyters, and they would say it is exactly the same thing I'm saying it is, which is an elder. That's all the word means. Somebody older than someone else, but in this case, then it means somebody older and therefore more experienced, hopefully somebody with wisdom, hopefully, 
And so uh, in a leadership role because of their uh, age and experience. Okay? So the elders of a church and the Presbyterian form of government arose in response to what has been called this form of government. How do you say that word? Lots of whispering, little saying. Louder. Eskipotos? I don't even see a T in there anywhere, but okay. Episcopos. Now, this is a compound... I actually, somebody over here was right. Episcopos is it, episcopos in a context, a certain context, where being in that context changes the, um, the accent, and I'm used to that context. So this is the lexical form. So this is how you're going to usually see it when it's standing alone. And by the way, uh, this is nominative. We're going to talk about that a little bit later the nominative ending or the primary nominative ending. So that's why you're seeing so many Omicron sigmas on the end. But, of course, it's not the only one, and that's why you see that one not being that. Now, epi. Now, you, you're, you're trying to motion this way, though, which is close because it is indeed a preposition. Uh, yeah, preposition. Okay. Nope, that would be Perry. Over. Okay, not on necessarily, but over. Scopus. What does it sound like? Scope. What's a scope? Something you see through. Scopus is to see or a seer. So, literally, an overseer, okay? Now, episcopos, there's, there's a, I've been shown this, and I was never able to recreate it because it was so obscure, but this actually comes into Old English um, as a transliteration to a word. This is English letters, by the way, so don't read that as a beta. Bishop. So a bishop is an overseer. Another word for overseer, a literal translation into American, is supervisor. Over, super, seer, visor. Okay? So an overseer or supervisor is the person who just made sure everything was going right. The interesting thing is that the reason the Presbyteros people, the Presbyterians, went with theirs is they wanted a group of elders instead of a bishop. But in the early church, there was never a bishop. It did not exist. A bishop, or episcopos, there we go, uh, was always plural. In other words, there was more than one of them. There was never in a church just one overseer. Just one elder. If there was not a plurality, they weren't appointed yet. And typically the, uh, the apostles or the evangelists like Timothy and Titus would simply wait until there were enough who were mature enough and appoint them. Go ahead and do that. Um, now, there's one more, and this one 
is a lot more obscure in English. Can anybody want to risk that? Yeah, just a little different accent, and you're pretty much there. Um, except you're, you're mixing Erasmian and modern Greek. That's okay. Um, so I would say Pimoni. And um, I would suspect the Erasmians would say Poimoni. Kind of an A, A sound on the end. Um, what does it mean? Again, there's no English derivative of it, so you either know it or you don't. It's a shepherd. An old English word for shepherd, because a shepherd takes the sheep to a, a big grassy place called a what? Pasture. And so a shepherd became known as a pasturer, someone who took sheep to a pasture. And pasturer, of course, sounds awkward, so it got shortened to pastor. Pastor is simply a word for shepherd. Once again, though, in the early church, there was never a pastor of a congregation. There were always pastors who were also known as elders and overseers, same people. So three terms for the same office, if you will. And they were the ones who oversaw the servants, including the ones appointed deacon, who had to have, you look in First Timothy and Titus, had to have some pretty strong spiritual qualifications. But they, they still were not the overseers of the whole ministry. They were the overseers of something that had been delegated to them by these people. So who delegates to me my ministry. The elders, pastors, overseers. So who are the pastors of North Orange Christian Church biblically, not Americanly? What are their names? You know some of them. You know some of them. <laughs> Come on. Really? Let's see. We got a husband here. We got a. Okay. John Reyes is one of our pastors. Doug Lake is one of our pastors. Okay. Larry Cohn. Carlito Jackson. Bob Hill. They're the pastors. So when somebody calls me pastor, by the way, the senior minister in our church is, by bylaws, an ex officio pastor or elder. So if you call me pastor, then, okay, technically, okay, I'm one of them, but I'm not the. So whenever somebody says, are you the pastor? No, I'm one of them. And of course, that always confuses them, and they're stopping. Well, what do you mean? You know, and if it's a police officer trying to, you know, conduct business or something, they get really irritated. But I don't care. We're, we're teaching here. So let's, let's be accurate, right? Okay. Now, how do I know that these words mean what I say they mean, and are the same as one another. Context of the Bible and the fact that I can read the Greek text. So the very things that what you're studying will lead you to be able to do, you're not there yet, are the ways you, you, you look at this and go, oh, wait a minute. 
that, then you're stuck accepting whatever a translator has said and no translators without bias. Most translators in the United States follow the pattern of what's called the monarchical bishop or the pastor. One guy who's God's man at that church. I mean, that is the next step thing to, to blasphemy. Honestly, it is just ridiculous. And by the way, it is dangerous if you look at what really happens in churches who, who conduct their businesses that way. And most do. The majority of them in Orange County do. Um, and you look at the inner workings of those churches and it is sad. So it's important to be able to study this and then to be able to say, now wait a minute, this is what the Bible says about church leadership. Where did we get the idea we should change that? Or that we know better? And as soon as we realize that's what we're doing, then we can repent and go back and say, no, that's not what we're going to do. Okay. Now, wasn't that fun? I'm making a note so that if I don't remember it, somebody remember for me. Because even in what I just said, there's another term that you guys might enjoy just seeing now that you can play with some of these, and that is repent or repentance. It's a pretty big term in our theology, right? Where, where do we get that? What does it mean? And we can get that from this. Okay. Let's do some practice. Well, first of all, let me give you these. And while I do this, I'm supposed to ask you a question. Do you have any questions? Terminal sigma. Is not an indication of morality. Correct. You want two? I gave you three. I'm sorry. Yeah, it is something that we've got to be careful of because in English we add an S to something or an ES or whatever, and that's our primary, not our only way. Uh, what's the plural of mouse? It's not mouses. Right? So we've got our exceptions, but that's the typical way that we indicate plurality, and uh, it's wrong for some time. It's always in Greek wrong. Sigma on the end is never an indication of plurality in Greek. Now here's something that is designed, it, it says practice sheet, and what I'd like you to do is exactly that. So you've got to have something to write with. And just take one of these. I see the funny one. Take one of these and practice. Um, practice saying it. Practice writing it. Uh, I would encourage you to write it as many times across as you have room for just so that you get used to writing letters together, writing words. Okay? So the first one is what? You're real close. Louder. Uh, just go with your instinct. Again, there's different ways to pronounce. We don't know the vowels. 
So what's that third letter? Hint is a consonant. Yeah. So phoné. Okay, and it doesn't mean phony. Although I haven't done an etymological search on phony, so I'm not real sure that it's not connected on, on our, our uh, colloquialism of phony. But um, phone. Sound. Telephone. Sound that's projected or carried. Okay? What's a cacophony? Okay. It's actually evil, wicked. Kakos is wicked. It's bad. Because in the Greek philosophy, if something wasn't beautiful, it was bad. If it was beautiful, it was good. It's a dangerous thing, because we, we have the same idea, and it's not always true. Uh, so, phone. Okay? Apostolos. We looked at that one last week. What is that? Apostle. Okay. Write that one a few times, if you haven't already. Now, this one... This next one I'm not entirely sure of. Has everybody done Apostolos, written it out several times? You say writing it out. You're talking about writing it in the Greek. Yeah, just copy it. Don't do that. Don't worry about that. Because either tonight at the end or to next week, we're going to begin vocabulary words. And you'll get sheets that will have it and the meaning. Okay, wave at me when you've written Apostolos across the sheet. Several of you have not waved, but you look like you're not writing, so you now have me confused. Okay. Now the next one... How to pronounce it is a mystery, uh, although most people pronounce it the same way. Um, you've got two gammas together, right? You, you recognize that. So it's going to usually be pronounced with a nunga, angelos, or angelos, if you're Erasmian. Um, actually, it sounds like English, but it's not. Um, it also sounds like something else, Angelos, like Los Angelos, angel, not angels, sigma is not plural, so Omicron Sigma is singular, nominative, it's one of the most common, if not the most common endings, and it means not necessarily an angel, but a messenger. The concept of angel is somebody who is God's messenger. So write that one across the, the page a few times, and then again, wave at me. You like those demos? Because you're a gamma. Okay, I didn't, I didn't get near enough credit for that, guys. 
Okay. Next. How do you say that? Cardia or cardia, depending on how you're going to pronounce that delta. And that sounds like? Yeah. So it means what? Heart. What does heart mean to a Greek? No. Gut means gut to a Greek. What does heart mean to a Greek? And don't put it with a question mark. Yes. Okay. To begin with, it means this muscular thing inside me that functions as a pump connected to my vascular system, making blood go all over my body. In other words, it meant the exact same thing to them as it does to us. It is a literal word, and it means the organ we call heart. Whereas the organ they call, they might, we might call the gut, or bowels, or even, no, not stomach, but bowels, would be splachna. I'll give you one of those to pronounce later. And to practice. Well, the Greeks kind of saw things, well, they, they almost always saw things in a binary way. It's called dualism. And so you got inside and you got outside. Okay? And inside is you can't see it, therefore it's spirit or emotion, feeling, will, uh, thought. And they tended to kind of get all mixed up. So there's some words that cover all of that, and there's some words that cover part of it. And heart can frequently mean feeling. Uh, whereas bowels would typically mean the same thing, probably a bit more pronounced. So not always. That's, that's, they, they tend to blend together. So used metaphorically, they're, they're synonyms. Just as we might say, uh, he has, uh, that guy has a lot of heart, or he's got guts. would mean pretty much the same thing in English or in American. Okay. Okay, my iota does not. I don't have an iota. I have iota. Pretty much, yes. Well, see, again, I do buy this. I do buy this theory that if you can pronounce it the way Greeks do today then you've at least got some that's useful in talking to Greek people today or reading Greek from today. And I've actually done that a few times. Listen to somebody, you know, it's kind of like me listening to somebody speaking Spanish. I'll pick one out of five words or maybe two out of five, but I do get some words. Okay, have you written that across the way? All right, the next one. Yeah, there's no E sound. There's a lot, in modern Greek, there's a lot of E sounds, but Omicrons don't give you that. So it's either phobos or favos. It is not favos. You don't get to mix the two sounds. You, you choose one or the other. But it's the, the P, or PH, and then the beta. B or V. Again, modern Greeks would say phobos, whereas the Erasmians would say 
Phobos. Or Phobos. Phobos. Okay. Except usually I hear them say Phobos because they're influenced by the American. And do you hear the American word or the English word? Phobia. Now, it means fear, but it means also terror. It means also reverence, even respect. So lots of shades of meaning of this. And the, the reverence and the respect and the, and the connection to terror is very easy to understand. If you remember, for example, when Jesus calmed the sea and Peter fell on his face before Jesus. Why would he have done that? He knew this man. He, he was following him. He served him. So what's with falling on his face? Reverence. But why would reverence be falling on your face? Why wouldn't it be some nice formal kneeling? Yeah, because there's a certain amount of awe and, and even terror. Um, it's okay to have the terror as long as you understand he's good. So, you know, I've said this before uh, last year when I was contemplating the possibility of this being a lot sooner. Um, how am I going to be? Have you ever heard this song, I Can Only Imagine? Okay. Um, I don't imagine. I honestly believe I know how I would be. And I think I know how you'll be. I think we'll all hit the dirt. I think we're going to be face down. And it's going to be a combination of overwhelming awe and a knowledge and understanding of who this is in front of us and reverence because we belong to him. We trust him. So it's both. Okay? Uh, by the way, the English that comes out of this is not fear. What is phobic or phobia? No, not just fear of. There's a, there's a qualifier that goes in front of it. Irrational fear of. I, I'm scared to death of spiders. I truly am. And no, that's not funny. And if you try to joke with it, you're out of the class. You bring a spider in here, uh, you'll be lucky if I don't have a shotgun. Because I will shoot it if I have a shotgun. And I don't really care what's behind it. Um, that's how one treats spiders. It is not irrational. I have an allergy. And any spider bite can cause me grave damage or kill me. Every spider, by the way, there's not a spider alive that's not poisonous. See, some people, well, it's not a poisonous spider. Yes, it is. You simply don't think you're going to react to the poison badly. I can't tell how I'm going to. So that's not an irrational fear. It is an extreme fear. Now, on the other hand, very few people have been kicked to death by bunny rabbits. In fact, I don't know anybody or of anybody personally who's been kicked to death by a bunny rabbit. There might be someone, but I'm not aware of them. So somebody who is terrified and, and just cannot stand the idea of a bunny rabbit around them, that is indeed an irrational fear. There's, there's no reason behind it. Okay? So we've got to be careful when we throw that word phobia around, especially when we're labeling people, because a lot of people have good reason for fear. Um, and by the way, dislike or disagreement does not equal phobia, much less irrational fear. All right. Now we, we have some that are capitalized. Why would a, a word be capitalized? Yes, because remember, we're, we're, we're moving our things like capital letters versus uh, 
uh, small case letters, our pronunciation, our, our um, uh, punctuation, even our sentence structure and our, our paragraph structure, and we're imposing that on Greek. So, well, how do you say this word? Markles, which, I mean, we, we hear that in a lot of languages today because a lot of languages are derived from Greek. What is the English equivalent? Mark is the name. Tell me when you've written the name numerous times. Okay. Yeah. Yes, the accent mark there is a little uh, kind of a dip, uh, an inverted um, arc. Why? Not going to tell you. Um, number one, honestly, it's very convoluted. Number two, you're not going to remember it. Number three, we are going to get to it anyway, but it's going to be later uh, if we have time. Because it's one of those things that it is indeed an accent mark. You're not likely to need to know which accent mark style to write on something for what you're going to do. And so I'd rather focus on the things you do need to know and we'll throw that in for fun later if we've got time. But there are rules to determine when you use that versus the others, and then there are exceptions to the rules, and yes, they will drive you crazy. Um, the next one also has a capital. What is it? Okay. See, somebody over here did what? What did you say? Yes, you did. Okay. So we have a tendency to immediately see what we have heard. So it's Nicodemus. Okay? Not, not Moth, by the way, Moth. Or Moth, but Omicron. Okay? And of course it comes into English as Nicodemus. What part of, of let, let's go back to Marcos just because it's short. part of this word is actually the word as opposed to a um, grammatical sign to you. In this case, I'm not in every one. So, yeah, it's, it's this. So, the Omicron Sigma is a nominative ending. So, you may see No, no, it's a name, but the root of the name change is, is, is added to the ending depending on the role the noun, because it's a proper noun, plays in the sentence. Is it the subject? Markles. See? If it's the object, then I'm afraid it gets way more complicated than English, so it could be any number, but it would most often, often be something like this. Um, this is an especially interesting one for proper names, or proper nouns. We're going to see that. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll go ahead and add that in a second. Um, because this is called vocative case, and it means somebody speaking to that person. Okay? Not that they're speaking, because that would be nominative, but addressing that person. So, like, dear Randy, 
um, they could still say dear, which, by the way, would usually be from the root of agape. So agape tea, that would be their version of dear. Um, but then the epsilon would be the ending. And that tells you that this isn't being a person who's being described or a person who is acting, but a person who is being addressed. Okay? Why would that be important? Yeah. And that, that helps to understand the sentence, of course. Sometimes it helps to even apply it. Or not. Last week, we looked at Ephesians 5.22 and 5.25. Um, Ephesians 5.22, anybody remember the, how it starts? What's the first word? Yeah. Wives are to be subject to their own husbands, right? Wrong. It's not what it says. And the reason it's important to understand that is, I'm not a wife. Guess who quotes that passage most times? Husbands. But it's vocative. As Paul is saying, so, you wives, I'm talking to you now, you do this. As though he's saying, you wives, husbands, shut up a minute. I'm not talking to you. Okay? And then, 25, he's now talking to husbands. Vocative. Husbands, love your wives. Guess who quotes that one? It ain't the husbands. See? It's, it's this thing we get into trying to tell somebody else, you're supposed to be doing something instead of minding your own business. Well, in both cases, we're being addressed in such a way as to suggest we ought to be minding our own business. And it's actually part of what's being said there. So the address part of it would be the Yes, vocative means it's being addressed. We're going to come to that again in a little bit, but um, since we, we were dealing with uh, endings, it's important as you're writing this just to understand Marcos is not all the name. Mark is the name, but you'll never hear it just Mark because there's always an ending telling you how it's being used in the sentence. And if you're, if you're just talking to someone, so I keep saying Tim because I keep talking to Tim. See, what I just said, I keep saying Tim, it would be Timmy with the epsilon every single time. So every time you say, Tim, do this. Tim, what about this? Tim, what do you think? Every single time would be the same ending. So that person would hear their name mostly with that ending. But they would understand that it's an ending. It just means I'm being talked to. See? But if it's, you know, because I'm talking to Tim, then it would probably be Timo. And you have a, a, what's called a um, locative ending or dative. could be both probably. We'll talk about that if we have time at the end of the class today. So, okay, that fun little excursus over. We move on to one more name. Petros. Yeah. See, and again, it's so tempting to go Petros, or, you know, because we know this name is Peter from the English. But Petros could be Petre. When, he, when Jesus is talking to, to him, it's Petre. When it's about him, it's usually Petru. 
but not all the time. Okay, practice writing. And when you see things like that, do practice the uppercase because proper names, the way we write, even New Testament Greek, we incorporate our rules for cases or for uh, upper and lower cases. Almost all of them are. So, Petros is what? Rock. See, we're we're one of those weird societies that has a language derived from so many other languages that we've got lots of names. Almost all of them have meaning. Timos is a Greek word. It's not a name. It's a Greek word. Anybody know what it means? Do you? The Greek. It means honor. Okay. Okay, so we named somebody Timos. Now, I have no idea, honestly. Your parents may well have known because your dad went to Bible college, so they may know what that word means. Um, Kara. What does it mean? Say, how do you spell your daughter's name? Incorrectly. How do you spell it? I spell it with a K. Okay, that's how I spelled mine, too. Just because I knew that if I didn't, everybody would call her Chara. I didn't want parents to grow up and call Chara. Yeah, exactly. My youngest is Tara, or Kara, actually, um, from the same, um, the same root, although Haris is grace, Hara is related to grace. It is the result of grace, which is joy. So, Hara means a gift of joy. Okay? So, we knew that. We named her that way. My parents named me Randall. If you call me Randall, I will know you're mad at me, and I will then... Bristle. I will attempt not to be mad at you because the Lord does not want me to do that. However, I'm not always very successful in that attempt, so I'm just telling you up front. So when my parents named me that, you know why they named me that? Because it sounded good to them. Which is dumb. I'm sorry. It was just dumb. And they had no idea what it meant. Even though, interestingly enough, I was born in Germany. They, they named me in Germany. And it has an ancient Germanic root. Not a modern one, by the way. An ancient one. Nope, doesn't mean slap your hand. <laughs> Does anybody know what Randall means? There is an unfortunate um, vulgarism that British-speaking people make out of the shortened version, which actually relates to the actual root of Randall, which is wolf. That's where it comes from. We're not going to get to the vulgarism, because that's vulgar. Okay, you guys are done writing Petros? Or Petros, if you want to be that way. Yes. Any questions? <laughs> Didn't think so. Ask me afterwards when I've got this thing turned off. Okay. What's the next one? What? Well, may. 
Actually, it's Chrome. Chrome. You got you to say the first syllable accent, and it's two syllables. And how we write it is one syllable, or how we pronounce it, because we pronounce it Rome. It's the city of Rome. Okay. And you've got a breathing mark there, and the breathing mark, if you use those. Is uh, kind of puts an H, but it's a very, very light. It's not hello. It's hello. A little bit, a little bit. In, in front of a consonant, it's very difficult, and and you usually don't find it in front of a consonant. Um, in front of a vowel, it, it typically is simply going to be an H, but frequently that's gone away today. Frequently, and, and it's interesting because they actually do use the H sound today. So a lot of times they simply have dumped it, and other times they're still utilizing it for given words. For example, agios means holy, but in Greek today, and this goes back to ancient Greek or ancient Middle East anyway, uh, hagia. So the hagia sophia. That's that's the Greek Orthodox version of the Vatican. What does it mean? Holy Wisdom. So it's the Church of Holy Wisdom. Yeah? Could you just remind me of pronunciation thing? What's the difference between an Omicron sound and an Omega? In Erasmian, it's short versus long, A versus O. In modern Greek, they're both long O's. So there is no difference in modern Greek. So if you're listening to it and you're trying to write it and you've never heard the word, you're going to guess because you really don't know whether it's Omicron or Omega. Okay, now we've got a fun one. How would you pronounce this word? Okay, Udor or modern Greek, the Utsalan, Utsalan would be an E sound. So Idor, not Igor. Ezor, okay. Anybody want to guess what it means? We, we have a word that's similar to it, but we only use the very beginning of it. Yeah? No. Because look at the breathing mark. So it would actually be Hedor. comes into English frequently as a Y. Why it does that, I can't tell you, but it does. So H-Y-D, hydro is what? Water. That's the word for water. See, so you know these things, you don't even know you know these things. That's kind of fun. Again, the, the pronunciation is, is extraordinarily iffy. Okay, guys, let's move it on. We've already seen the prefix epi. Okay? Now we've got the prefix epi with another part of a word. So what is this word? Okay? Epistole or epistoli, depending on modern versus European. And what does it mean? Epistle. 
Which, okay, once again, what does it mean? How many of you used the word epistle last week? <laughs> Did you say this is a long epistle? If it was long, it might have. <laughs> means? Letter. Or even note. So when you hear people talking about the Pauline epistles, they're, what they're doing is using an academic term that is anachronistic. And what they really should be saying is Paul's letters. Because when it was first referred to as Pauline epistles, that's what it meant. It wasn't formal, it wasn't academic, it just meant Paul's letters. Okay, write that one across the page for a while. Tell me when you've done that.
using your, what, what, what did you guys call it, the hangman tree? Gallows from Galatea? The Galatea? Or the Gallows? Okay, wave at me when you're done with this. Alrighty. Give me just a moment or two. The next one's kind of fun. The next one, oddly enough, is actually a compound word. However, is that first letter upper or lowercase? It is indeed, which tells you what? So it's a proper noun, which means a name, and is the compound word. So how do you pronounce it? Well, look, look where the accent mark is. Stevia Now, the accent mark again, mark again will change with its place in a sentence and with the ending. So here, in the lexical form, it's Stevia The first part of it is a word you guys have already encountered. So I'm sure you know what it is. Or for capital. So that's a capital and a lowercase together, which you never do, because it just looks really sloppy. What does that mean? Love, friend love, brother love. Okay? So I love it, but it's not erotic love, romantic love. It's also not the, what we would call God's love, agape. It's feel. Okay? By the way, God does, through the incarnation, experience this love, because Jesus calls people his friends, and he uses this word. Um, now, the second word is what? He what? Oh, you just added several letters. You're a very creative person. No, second, second of this compound word. Okay? Now, if I add a breathing mark and an immediate uh, accent, hippos, and the breathing mark is a hard one, so that's hippos. Hippo. Horse. Steel hippos. Horse lover. Philip. Philip means horse lover. Okay, extra credit. Now that we got hippos, hippopotamus, water horse. They they saw this big thing that had this long snout, and obviously it shaped a wee bit different than a horse, but four legs, long snout, water horse. Okay. See, I told you this is all sorts of fun. Now, let's let's go with this last word. Oh, come on. Put the put the accent at the very beginning. It's the, the first vowel has the accent. Well, it's e or e if you're put modern pronunciation. Okay. 
So it's generally going to be pronounced because of the English that comes from it with an E. And then what is that other letter? Remember, it's the egg thing? Eggs. Odos. It's actually also a compound word.
tuck you under my wings. And so what would the case be for Jerusalem when he says that? Vocative. Because he's talking to Jerusalem. Okay? When he says to the, to the mountain, get up and go over there. Now it's not even a proper noun. He's talking to a mountain, which most of the time we don't do. But when we do, if we do, what case would there be? Because it's a mountain. Which is entirely irrelevant. We're talking to it. So what is it? Vocative. See? Okay. We're going to get to the... Tell you what, we're already into that, so I'm going to switch from the order that you've got. Let's, let's talk case. Types and use of case. Rather than verbs, which we will get to, but later. Is everybody okay if we do this, uh, go a few more minutes, maybe 20, 30 more minutes before break? Okay. Now, um, for this thing I gave you for practice, take that home with you. And anytime I give you something like this, even with the, uh, I'm going to start giving you tonight or tomorrow, or tomorrow, next week, I'm going to start giving you um, uh, vocabulary sheets. Get out blank pieces of paper and just start writing them. Get used to writing. The more you write, the more natural it will feel to you, and your brain is going to understand when you look at it what it is. And that's really what it's about, is cueing your brain to what this is about. Okay, case. From last week, anybody remember what case means? What is it about? describes the function of a noun or adjective, and there is the principle of agreement. So, there's a title that is also a function. What's the proper noun? The subject. And that's 
tells you then what that phrase is about, the house of Mark. Okay? And so that phrase can be anywhere in the sentence, and it's the same thing. It means the same thing. So it gets complicated to us, but to them, it's, it's a sign of what it's all about, and it gives them freedom to just emphasize it or de-emphasize it, depending on where they put it. Now, I have, uh, I have changed a handout that I used to use, which was to simply put these things out alphabetically. And I put them out more in the line of how, how often these are used. Now, you know, is accusative used more than genitive? I don't know. They're probably pretty close. But they're both used a whole lot more than instrumental. Well, more, maybe not a whole lot. Um, certainly more than vocative. Okay? Nominative is used the most. Nominative means it is either the subject, so Peter walked on water. What's the, what's the subject? And so what would be nominative? Peter. Okay? And that, by the way, would be Petros. And just like we wrote it. Okay? Or it can be in the predicate. And the predicate is a verbal phrase. Mary and Martha were children. So children would be nominative. Because it's part of a predicate phrase. So it would be the nominative and predicate. Okay? Now, in English, we use things like this, but we, we almost never, unless you're, you're like a doctoral level grammatician, you're not going to go to this level. How many of you diagram sentences in English? How many of you diagram to the level of the type of case? See? Most of us probably not even bothering with case. We just said things like object, subject, and just, that was enough. So the functions are familiar to us if you stop and think about it, but they're not familiar enough because we don't actually describe them. In the Greek, the problem is the endings will change for these. So you need to know what they are because otherwise you're trying to figure out what's with that ending. And you don't know what, but the ending will tell you and it will differentiate it. Although, every now and then, just to keep us on our toes, you'll find two different ones, two different cases, with the same ending. So how do you know which case it is in that context? I just gave you a big hand. Context. Okay. Okay, so everybody gets nominative. Now we've got accusative. Accusative does not mean somebody slandering the other. Okay? Accusative has, first of all, direct object. So Peter walked on water. What's the object? Water. So it is water that would be the accusative and would have the accusative ending. And you know, both because it makes no sense and because of the grammar, that water didn't walk on Peter. How do you know that in English other than it makes no sense? How do you know who walked on what? Or who? Hmm? But how do you know what's the subject? Peter walked on Mark. Because water doesn't walk, so we know, okay, that's silly. Mark walks 
So which, how do you know whether Peter walked or Mark walked? Sentence placement in English. So whichever one's before the word walked. In Greek, if you're trying to say, Peter walked on Mark, you know? It's like maybe you're saying it in a, uh, in a metaphoric sense because they debated. And Peter just walked all over him. Okay? So you're, you're, you're emphasizing, really, Mark, of all people. You know? So Mark would be the first name, not Peter. And then you could put Peter, and then you could put walk. Or then you could put walk, and then you could put Peter. It doesn't matter. Because the ending's going to change. You know, walk and Peter go together. And you know, Mark is accusative, so he's the one who's the object. See what I mean? So it, it, it gave them, it, it, as confusing as it is to us, it gave them another way of expressing something that we really don't have. Okay, so direct object. There's the double direct object. I teach you Greek. I'm teaching you, and I'm teaching Greek. So the double direct object. And they would agree. You and Greek would have to agree in the ending. There's the accusative of extent of time. So, for example, um, I'm teaching all night long. So all night, actually it would be all night long, I guess. So the word long would be in there too. Would be the, the accusative. And those words would be um, in agreement with each other in the ending. And that's how you know it's a phrase describing how long I'm teaching. Or it could be an accusative of general reference. Peter heard us say that. Fill in the blank of whatever he heard us say, because that's going to be a quote. So us say that would be the general reference accusative. I love the look on your face. Because I mean, this is what everybody does. It's what I did. We're all sitting there. I was, I was doing this in a college course, and every single one of us is going, what? You know, but again, we do this. We use these. We just don't know we're doing it. All right. Genitive. There's the absolute genitive. Because they were heard, the Lord gave. The Lord gave is a, is a verb, right? But the Lord, is, uh, there's a subject there. So you've got two phrases. Actually, that would be a clause, the Lord gave. Because they were heard, the Lord gave. Yes, in other words, they, they, their prayer was heard. Okay? So they were heard, because they were heard, is genitive. And the Lord gave is the short phrase that would be the nominative, the Lord, and probably the accusative. No, not the accusative. <laughs> the verb gave. Does that make sense? But you don't have to do that in Greek. You don't even have to do that in English. If you're emphasizing in English that he gave because they, their prayer was heard or they were heard, then you would say it this way. Okay? All right. 
the objective genitive, I have need of water. <coughs> Excuse me. Frequently, genitive is expressed with the preposition of. By no means all the time. We just got through the first one. But frequently. So, I have need of water. That's the objective genitive. Genitive of direct object. I remember Peter. So you've got somebody who's basically a direct object, but it's genitive. That could be accusative, but it could also be genitive. There's a choice. Okay? Of material or content. How many of you have heard of the pillar of fire? Pillar of fire. Anybody remember telling about pillar of fire? Okay, the Israelites are wandering around Sinai. So there's a pillar, and the content of the pillar is fire. So it's of material or content. But then there's also the genitive of possession. Once again, of is, if you said the pillar of fire, and it's fire is pillar, it makes no sense. Right? So you know that's not happening there. What about the house of God? When you say the phrase house of God, whose house is it? Okay. In this context, with the pillar of fire, what was the house of God? Well, no, what was the house of God? It was God's house. What was it? What did the pillar of fire go in front of? Exodus. Tabernacle. Remember? I don't remember it, but I won't say it's not there. However, I guarantee you there was one in the Sinai in front of the tabernacle going around at night. Okay. Pillar of fire. Pillar which consists of fire. husband. 
it could be worded in such a way that just with wife's husband, the word husband, the ending would be possessive, showing that it is a husband that belonged to the wife. But we talked about the fact that Paul puts ebios in, an extreme possessive. And he's doing that to emphasize your own husband. So it's, in essence, your, your own husband, if it was literal. And a lot of times then we don't translate literal because it feels so awkward. Okay. That there are, is a time, by the way, in Jesus' own speech when that becomes extraordinarily important to understand that replication of adding pronoun even though uh, the ending of the word contains it already. I'll show you that in later. And they actually spoke in, the, in, in that way, not just writing it in that way. So it wasn't that economy. No, no, no. They, they spoke as, just, just as it was written. And it, it made no difference to them. Our language to somebody, for example, from Korea, the way we speak, once they understand the words, prepositions, and so forth, sounds very weird. And so you'll, you'll frequently, if you listen to somebody who's definitely working with English as a second language, a lot of times you'll, you listen, you'll hear speech patterns. You'll hear clauses put in different places. It's almost like they're talking like Yoda sometimes. And you hear that, and you can identify sometimes what their first language is, if you're familiar with those patterns. Because their language organizes the, the speech differently than we would. And they have such a hard time mentally making that switch, just as we would the other direction. Okay. Um, finally, uh, genitive used as an adjective marries lamb. Now, Mary obviously is proper noun, right? Except Mary is being used as an adjective, so it would be a genitive ending, the lamb of Mary. Because it, it describes which lamb or what kind of lamb, the one that belongs to Mary. Does that make sense? Okay. All right, then there's ablative. Again, how many of you used that one last year? Sometime in the year you said ablative in a sentence. Did you really? I did. All right, good for you. Let the record show there's one person in the room. All right. <laughs> I did, by the way, uh, use the word somewhere along the line because I speak sometimes of such things with a certain staff member studying Greek, but only because of that. Okay, there's ablative of agent, the work of Paul. Now, in English, that kind of feels or sounds like genitive of possession, right? But it's talking not about who owns the work because the work of Paul could be the writing of Tim. The word belongs to Paul, but Tim wrote it. Can that happen? In our country, we have a thing called copyright, and it denotes legal ownership of a written thing. Anything I write is automatically owned by North Orange Christian Church because I'm full-time, and there's really no on and off with my job description. So, anything I write belongs to North Orange Christian Church, but I wrote it. 
So you could have both agency and possession, and they're not the same thing. Okay. The work of Paul. But in this case, meaning what Paul wrote. Okay? Okay, it could be habit of a separation of source. So, um, the work of Paul from home, as opposed to the work of Paul from jail. Does that make sense? Paul wrote some stuff from home, and he wrote some stuff from jail. The phrase from home, from jail, would be ablative of source. And the reason it's important is because it has a different ending than if it's simply saying it's from there. program 
and it'll tell them from that point forward. That's how I do it. Okay, dative. Dative and locative are similar. Dative is, there's a dative of direct object. Lazarus is a slave to Philip. So you'll notice it's, it's infinitive. So to Philip, the infinitive to Philip, to, is dative. And then there's the indirect object. Lazarus says to Philip. So it's just used a little bit differently. And then there's locative. And locative is easy to know. I mean, you've almost got a definition here because our word location comes from the same word. So locative is about location, but it's a location in terms of place or in terms of time. So locative could be in the garden, or locative could be in a little while. In the garden would be place. How do you say come a little while in that situation? One word or two? Oh, a little while? A while. A while. In a little while, I said, oh. actually. Although, if I said the two together, I would spell it with while as a word and a as an article. Because a while is actually a contraction without dropping. It drops the space instead of a letter. Okay? Two more. We're almost done. And then we take a break. Instrumental. There's the instrumental of associative, which is with for example, with her own brothers. Okay? She can go out, but only with her own brothers. So it, it denotes who she's allowed to associate with or who she is associating with. Okay? And then there's the instrumental of manner. Lazarus can speak with boldness. So it's used adverbially. With boldness modifies how Lazarus speaks, which is a verb. Does that make sense? Do not try to, to, to memorize all of this now. I'm, I'm trying to put it out there, just kind of reopen some of those pathways and get you remembering or thinking about basic English grammar, maybe even in some ways you haven't before, but you've used. Because we all use these different things. We just don't necessarily label them. Okay? There is one last one, which we've already talked about, and that is the vocative of direct address. And it is exactly what we already looked at, talking to someone. So if I address something to Tim, in English, I do not change an ending. I simply say Tim. And I know I'm talking to Tim, because then the next part is like a whole different clause. Whereas if I'm talking about Tim, I'm going to say something like Tim is. Okay? So Tim, get up and leave. I'm talking to Tim. Tim is getting up and leaving. I'm talking about Tim. Everybody sees the difference. In Greek, all it takes is seeing the word. And it emphasizes this is the person being addressed. And in some cases, a la Ephesians 5, by implication it emphasizes who's not being addressed. So when 
compulsive wives. He, he said in verse 21, submit yourselves to one another. Wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. 25, husbands. Interpolation, by loving your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So, husbands aren't supposed to be listening to 21 through 24 and wives aren't supposed to be listening to 25 on. Would the husband be instrumental well, in there, or no? To your own. Um, I have to go in and look it up. I'm, I'm thinking genitive of possessive, oh, but okay. possession. But like I said, the way I determine this is I open up my Greek study Bible and on on my laptop and put my cursor over it, and it tells me. And I'm just really good with that. It totally works for me. I've got way more things to cram into my head and, and use the limited storage space that uh, I'm not worried about this one not being there. Okay? Sure. So is it, like, not something to worry about, like, which direct object it is? Such direct object shows up in the definitive and definitive and definitive and definitive and definitive and definitive and definitive the reason I'm giving it to you is because you're going to be seeing endings if you go deep enough. Now, to take this class, you, you're, you're going to get exposed to it, but you may then just let that roll right off of you and never look at it again. That's fine. Because, again, we have tools that will do all that for us, and we can choose to go that route. But if you choose to go further with it, then you're going to need to know that ending indicates that. So it's a direct, it, it is uh, a direct object of genitive as opposed to accusative uh, or as opposed to dative. And you'll get to, you'll get to noticing the differences pretty quick once you see the endings. Maybe. Maybe not. Because endings can overlap. I've said that already. But they're separate in the sense that one's one thing and one's another, even though they look identical. If you've ever tried to learn a foreign language, you've experienced what I'm talking about. As soon as you learn a rule, someone throws about 15 different exceptions at you, and your head's spinning, and you're going, well, wait a minute. Then why are we even saying that's a rule? Because it's a rule 51% of the time. English is actually, I'm told, one of the worst on the planet. Yeah, because we've done all sorts of weird, non-intuitive things. Uh, and I think that's because we, I don't know, but I think it's because English is derivative from so many other languages. Um, some of them derivative from some of the others. So we have Latin, for example, and Greek, and even some Hebrew. But we also have Gaelic, and we also have Germanic, and various Nordic, and some Hispanic, except Hispanic is derivative from Latin, too, and Latin partially derivative from some Greek. So, you know, it just goes all sorts of interesting pathways, and we've we just got a bizarre language. Yeah. Then, add to that the fact that we don't speak English. We speak American. If you do not believe this, go to, go to Britain, because... They'll look at you they are, what in the world are you talking about? What are you saying? And, and, if, and if they come over here and use, especially if they use any colloquialisms at all, 
rather than just strict academic terminology. We're just like, what? What did you say? You know, because we don't know. Now, the way to get around that is to watch BBC. But now, BBC is showing American-made movies or American-made shows. So it's like, you, you just can't win. Okay, guys, let's take a break. In 11.10 or 8.10, it's not 11. 9, no matter what. So there.